And that the, the best thing I can think of to do is take a four, four note chord in each hand and play it as loud as you possibly can. And notice once you have made a sound, notice that you can in, instantly let up just enough pressure to hold the keys down and do that over and over till you realize that you, what you have to do is you have to notice whether or not you continue pushing after you've made a sound. The moment you've made a sound, you don't need to push anymore except enough weight to hold the keys down. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Emil Pandolfi. Emil Pandolfi is a professional pianist and entertainer with over 40 years of performance experience. One of the top-selling pianists in the music industry, he has sold over 4.5 million albums, garnered more than 750 million streams online, and performed hundreds of concerts worldwide for thousands of fans. Although serious about his playing, Emil is never serious about himself and believes that every moment at the piano should be one of joy. Learn more at www.emilpandolfi.com. In the interview, we talked about his new book called Play It Like You Mean It, Supercharge Your Playing and Let Your Piano Work For You. Some of the topics that we talked about include incorporating emotional expression into technical exercises, the technique involved in playing forte, practice strategies, how to create your own piano arrangements, combating stage fright, and building a performance career while still maintaining a private studio. Hope you enjoy. Now on to the interview. Emil, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to discuss your new book called Play It Like You Mean It. I want to start with just the title of the book and talk about how this title might relate to the field of piano teaching, which is, of course, the focus of this podcast. This title is a phrase that you reiterate at the end of each chapter. So in your view, what does it mean to play piano, quote, like you mean it? And how might we be able to help our students be able to play the piano like they mean it? Right. Well, the, the best metaphor I can think of is in simply in talking. Like um, you can say, yesterday we went to the beach. We had a great time. It was a really beautiful temperature and everything was wonderful. Or you can say, Oh my gosh, yesterday we went to the beach. You wouldn't believe how exciting it was. The water was crystal clear, it was blue. And you're, you're telling somebody a story, but you're injecting your personality into it. And you're saying, this is what Chopin meant when he played this. He, he played it, this nocturne, when he wrote this nocturne, he meant it to just soar. And to... So I, I think if you use the uh, metaphor of uh, the spoken language, we all know, uh, a book read by a great actor like Stephen Fry or like or, or David Attenborough doing the Planet Earth series, they tell you something that involves their personality and, and you get emotion across. So I think that a lot of people learn to play the notes very, very well, but don't necessarily find out how to put themselves into it. And if you use that example of telling a story, which you're doing when you play music, then I think that I think that's what, what I'm trying to get at is a paradigm shift. Say, oh, I'm actually telling a story. I'm not just playing a beautiful melody. I'm actually saying something about that beautiful melody. Yeah, one point about that that you made in your book that I really um, admired was you talked about public speakers. And I think you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. and how partly why we remember him is not just 
the content of what he said, mm -hmm. but also the inflections he used, the way he paused. Uh, and you compared, again, as you were saying earlier, speech to language. And I think that has a lot of implications for how we shape a phrase in the same way that if you were Martin Luther King, you wouldn't just say, I have a dream. I mean, you would <laughs> say it with some kind of inflection. And I think same idea with the way that you would play a phrase by Chopin or Andrew Lloyd Webber or something on the piano. Exactly. I, I agree with you. It's the difference between fact and experience. You know, you're, you're, you're giving the, the fact maybe the notes, but the experience of those of that fact is what you're uh, getting across. I think it's traditional to say that music is the international language, but I've always thought that uh, emotion is the international language mm. and music is a great vehicle for that. The reason I say that is you or I could hear some music that is very foreign to us, some Asian or Indian music that we don't, we're not familiar with the, the scales and the quarter tones and things like that, but we can still get the emotional content from it. We still know if it's frightening or happy or scary or, or joyous uh, without having any intellectual understanding of the musical style. So I think that emotion is what comes across when you just hear um, drum beats that are exciting from the, you know, you, you get the, the emotion of it. So that's, that's my view. Absolutely. Now, as far as our students, uh, if we're piano teachers and we want to get our students to play it like they mean it and to play with the emotion that you're describing, there's kind of a paradox in that in order to get to that emotional point, there has to be at some point some work on some drills, which at least to them might feel a bit dry and extremely detached from emotion. And so more specifically, I want to talk about technique, which you bring up a lot in the book. And earlier in this interview, you were talking about a paradigm shift. And that's one phrase you use in your book when you talk about technical study. And you have a chapter on skills and arpeggios. So do you have any advice for how we can work with our students on some of these technical exercises and drills and get them to experience this paradigm shift that you're encouraging and, and get them to see the line between working on a scale and arpeggio and ultimately being able to play it like they mean it and play with emotional expression. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a great subject to talk about. And that is, I think when you play scales and when you play arpeggios and broken chords and all of the exercises that we do, while right while you're learning, right while you're training your muscles, you should be training yourself to say, this is a beautiful, make the scale beautiful, a thing of beauty from da 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 and try it in, in different dynamic levels. And, and uh, you know, you're doing what your teacher asks you to do. But I think that any moment you're at the piano, uh, that's not true, not any moment you're at the piano. Sometimes you're just simply learning to push the keys properly and you do what your teacher says. But if you also are making it a beautiful scale or a beautiful arpeggio or one that has an exciting finish. I think that's how you keep yourself interested in the technical exercises and you're training yourself from the get go to play expressively. Is that what your teacher did with you when you were growing up or is this something you kind of arrived at more yourself? I, it was more arriving at my, well, I would say no, by the time I got to college, my college professors were, teaching me to do that. And they had had me play at different dynamic levels. And maybe when you're playing scales in contrary motion with an art with a, a crescendo on both ends or play or voice it to the top and voice it to the bottom and things like that. So the 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 scales and arpeggios are no longer just learning to wiggle your fingers properly, but they're actually a, a vehicle for creating beautiful music at the same time.
Yeah, you brought up uh, crescendos there. And so I do want to kind of zoom in on a very specific idea you brought in um, in the book to give our listeners a sense of some of what you talk about. And so I do want to talk about your discussion of dynamics and the technique involved in dynamics. Um, One thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is you talked about playing dynamics as more a function of speed than a function of strength. Can you elaborate on that distinction and offer some drills we might be able to use with our students or even maybe some drills you use in your own practicing to help work on dynamics with a piece or arrangement in a way that's driven more by speed than by strength? Yes. And that the the best thing I can think of to do is take a four, four note chord in each hand and play it as loud as you possibly can. And notice once you have made a sound, notice that you can in, instantly let up just enough pressure to hold the keys down and do that over and over till you realize that you what you have to do is you have to notice whether or not you continue pushing after you've made a sound the moment you've made a sound you don't need to push anymore except enough weight to hold the keys down which is minimal you know it's a tiny bit of weight whatever the, almost the weight of your hand will keep the fingers the uh, keys depressed <clears throat> pardon me so i think when we do is the same with practicing scales one finger at a time it's you say boom i mean you just go oh, and it's a and it's a huge fortissimo and then instant relaxation yeah that reminds me of a master class i was watching with leon fleischer where he was talking about this and he uh a student was getting to a very loud passage and his point was the louder it should be the looser your wrists ah. should be Good for um, and I think that goes to your point. It also, I think, reminds me of in my earlier teaching days when I was a little more naive and I was trying to teach students about holding notes, I would, in a very tense voice, when I was nervous that they weren't going to hold the notes long enough, I would say, hold, hold, hold. <laughs> and you could see they were tensing up with their wrists. On the note. And actually, it should be, as you describe, it should be as soon as they push the note, the work is, is more or less done. And all you need is just this force to just keep the note down there. You can relax right after you. <laughs> Uh, push the cord. And that's something you talk about a lot in the book that I really appreciated. Um, So uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about practicing. Um, So in the piano teaching world, at least stereotypically, many, if not most piano teachers advocate practicing the most challenging spots of a piece first. And there are many method books that are designed to this effect, where before the full piece is even introduced, the most challenging pieces are introduced a page or two before. And the idea is that you're supposed to work on just those challenging spots before you are even aware of what the full piece sounds like. But you offer a somewhat contrasting perspective in your book, although, of course, you acknowledge that different strategies work for different uh, students. So can you offer your thoughts on how to structure a practice strategy in a way where you might work on the easier sections first? Yes. And uh <clears throat> Again, it's a it's a viewpoint. It's uh, my way of doing things. But the reason I do it, I still do it today, because I want to get some wins. I want to go through the. I want to acquaint myself with the new piece. I'm thinking mostly classical music because the, the pop tunes are a matter of arranging. They're not technically demanding usually. Uh, not certainly not as much as classical pieces. <clears throat> but if I go through a classical piece that I uh, want to get familiar with. I want to give myself some wind and say, wow, I could just play this beautiful melody by Chopin and I'm going to get to the melismas and the embellishments a little bit later on. But you feel when you approach a piece from doing the easier parts to play first, you get the thrill and excitement of 
getting acquainted with a new piece of music and you realize that uh, you don't think, oh, this is a very challenging piece. You think some parts of it are challenging, but the whole, as a whole, I think you get a feel that it's not as bad as I thought. And then you hmm. go back to the challenging parts. You have to spend most of the time on them, of course, but you've already acquainted yourself with it and you've hmm. got yourself feeling good about the piece. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, psych a psychological element there. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about your practicing. So you mentioned earlier in that answer that when you practice classical pieces, you might work on the easier sections first. So you get kind of a general feel for what the majority of the piece sounds like. And then you can work through the challenging passages. But you said for the pop tunes, which I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, that that is the bulk of nowadays what your work is. Um, and that the practice is more sort of play from beginning to end. Like what would a strat a practicing strategy look like for you in terms of working on some of the more popular arrangements? What I do, <clears throat> pardon me, I, uh, when I'm learning a new pop tune, I get the sheet music to make sure I know, because I can play it by ear, but I want to make sure I got it the way it was originally written. So I just familiarize myself with it. And it's, I, I don't worry about how it sounds as much as just learn it. Then I play it over and over and over and over again. And uh, my arrangements, some of them, my arrangements are technically demanding actually. Mm -hmm. But so when I'm just, I'm learning it, understanding it, and it's evolving, evolving, evolving. I usually keep a tape going and I just my iPhone or something. So, because very often I have a great idea and then I forget what it was a little bit later because mm -hmm. mine is mostly arranging. And, um, and I find that if, if I play it over and over and over in different keys and different ways, I get new ideas about it. And then once I, I have, I might have a, an idea that is technically tricky. So I, I put myself, uh, I write myself a few reminder notes and then I practice that bit by itself, uh, technically, but mostly it's, it's getting so intimately familiar with it that I can do anything I want with it. Can it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So the process of actually arranging itself, which you talk about also a little bit in the book, is largely, if I understand the answer you just gave correctly, based on improvising, at least on the outset, and recording some of your improvisations, and then listening back and finding kind of the kernel of what you think can ultimately create the final arrangement? That's exactly right. That's what I do. Yeah. Hmm. So I want to stay on this idea of arranging, which obviously you've become very prominent as an arranger of popular songs. And I'm sure many of our listeners, as well as even some of their students, I know I have students in this camp as well, would be interested in, like you, creating arrangements of songs that they admire, either songs from a radio or a movie or a musical, again, some of the stuff that you do. Um, so do you, in the book, you offer kind of a deep dive into a lot of the skills that are associated with arranging. You have a chapter on ear training and learning by ear, a chapter on improvising, but can you give us a bird's eye view of first what you, like your basic sort of sequencing of events when you set out to arrange a new popular song and how you might suggest that a more un uninitiated arranger such as a student or even a piano teacher who's never done this before might go about hearing a piece that they enjoy on iTunes and then creating their own piano arrangement of it? Yes, and I I do um, talk about that in the book and, and it's my, my holistic viewpoint on that is that I think what some uh, people when they're starting out arranging a new piece of music, they just started thinking, 
what's a variation of this tune? How should I do this or this? And I don't think they necessarily step back and say, now, who am I musically? What, are, what am I drawn to? Am I, when I talk, when I'm, and I'm, am I disjointed and disjunct, or am I very fluid and smooth? What, it's really, who am I? And then how would I treat this tune? Uh, if, if you had six different pianists arrange the same popular tune, you're going to come up with six different things because one is very intense and one is very gentle. And uh, it, it's, it really comes back to what I, what I think people need to do is find out who they are philosophically, musically, simply by looking at themselves and say, what, what's my, how do I behave in a crowd? How do I behave in a conversation? Do I do all the talking? Do I listen a lot? Which means I might have more silences in my arrangement. Uh, and is it going to be busy? Because I talk like this all the time and I'm just so you know, intense that that's the way I arrange. And for me, uh, it's interesting. If you notice any pianist that you do listen to enough, you see, oh, right away, you say, oh, that was Roger Williams or that was Liberace or that was somebody. Yeah, Liberace was going to be the obvious example I was thinking of where someone where there's clearly an overlap between their general personality yes. and their arrangements. That's a perfect example. Yeah. And, and you get to know that's that person's arrangement. How come? Because even though they do a lot, a lot of different things, they, they go back to who they are, whether they meant to or not. Uh, it's who you are is what comes out. I think the 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 thing you, trouble you can get into is starting to arrange without just say okay I'll make some variation of this tune and you have no idea. Yeah. It's very impersonal. Yeah, yeah. So staying on this idea, I mean, this is a very interesting idea. The <clears throat> idea of that you want to put your own personality into your arrangements and think about your own kind of social tendencies and how that might influence the type of arranging that you write. Have you noticed in yourself, I mean, you've done so many hundreds of arrangements by this point, any sort of tendencies you might have or any ways that you might consciously try to bring some of your own, I guess, personality traits or musical interests that tend to show up in a lot of your arrangements, which you would say is an example of putting yourself into your arrangements as opposed to just thinking about variations mm. and doing it impersonally? I hadn't thought about that particularly, but I know that I am inspired by most of all my inspiration comes from um, Chopin, Rachmaninoff, and Debussy. And just having, as we all have studied those, uh, those, those composers, you, I see that those resonate with me. Somebody else might like Bartok. Somebody else might like, uh, you know, um, uh, Vincent Persichetti. They're, and and, and it, it just resonates with them. So I think that when I, when I sit down to the piano, I, I look at myself, I said, when I sit down to a new piano, just to see what it sounds like, what do I default to? And for me, I go to the center part of the piano. Somebody else might go to the very top and just want to hear those crystalline bells. Somebody mm -hmm. else want to hear huge booming bass. Like you watch yourself and see what you do naturally go to a new piano and see i want to hear how this piano sounds well, what do you play what chords do you play i play a g minor ninth almost always when i sit down <laughs> and and then i play an arpeggio on, on the ninth uh, just because how come i don't know it just appeals to me but that's often and i when i'm arranging a song i might choose a key that is in the part of the piano that i like the best for that song and i'm talking about a song not a classical piece 
Yeah, uh, this is something I think about in my own. I, I don't do a lot of arranging, but I do compose. And I do notice that when I sit down, I have sort of ways that my hands fall. You mentioned G minor or not. I definitely have certain chords and certain rhythmic patterns that I default to. And there, so sometimes I want to do that. And I think, okay, I'm going to make my mark and it'll sound like me. And then other times I deliberately try not to mm -hmm. do that. And maybe I'll write away from the piano. Um, and I consciously think like, let's not do this yeah. stereotypical Ben Capolo thing yeah. that I normally would do. I don't know if you experience a similar thing in your arrangements. I have, and I have to, I have to be careful. I don't copy myself from, I did. Yeah. Uh, Stravinsky. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. I, I, so a lot of what we've talked about in this interview so far is sort of things that are before the performance. So we talked about practicing, we talked about arranging, we talked about technical drills. Now I want to talk about when all of that is done and we're actually performing in real life. And you had a very interesting chapter on stage fright, which is an issue that every piano teacher faces with almost every student, especially when there's recitals or competitions. Um, you describe in your book a way for us to shift our mind frame about stage fright that involves, instead of focusing our attention inward, focusing our attention outward. Can you discuss a little bit about what you meant by that? Sure. That's a favorite subject of mine. For, <clears throat> excuse me, I've almost never uh, have experienced stage fright. And I make a very clear distinction between stage fright is an unreasonable fear of being in front of people. A reasonable fear is I'm not ready. I didn't practice enough. I don't know my tune. That's perfectly, <laughs> you don't like it. It feels horrible, but you know why it happened. But if you are ready and you've practiced your piece of music and you, and you have your recital coming up, um, if you take as a, as a viewpoint, the audience are friends I have not yet met and I'm giving them a gift because that's what you were doing. I'm giving, I, I can't wait. When, if I were giving you, Ben, and I just met you, and I have this thing that I think you would really want, so this, uh, 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 an original edition of a, of a Beethoven sonata, and I can't wait to give it to you. And I, I hope you, when you open it, you'll say, oh my God, that was so good. The, the, my attention is on you and on the gift and on mm -hmm. this. It's not on me. And uh, well, well, I should have buttoned this shirt and, I, and my <laughs> glasses are look fine. I'm a funny looking man. I know that. Well, I'm, I don't have my attention turned on me. <clears throat> and the, I think the lesson here is that attention, direction of attention can be learned and you can become in charge of it. You'd refuse, and there are a dozen exercises in there to, to train that yeah. ability. But it's yeah. the ability to choose where your, where your attention goes because you're in, in command of that. And I think a lot of people don't know that, and they welcome and say, "And what is what is the the um, <clears throat> common denominator of stage fright? Is do I look funny? Is something wrong? Am I going to mess up? Yeah. It's all about me, 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 me. Yeah, self-absorbed. It should thoughts, be yeah. all about the the gift that you are giving. And and when I'm playing, I honestly I'm I'm a listener when I'm playing, and I'm saying, "Oh, that's so pretty." And if, if it's not so pretty, I try to make it prettier. Yeah, and I assume that would have obviously a lot of implications on what you've decided to do with your career in terms of arranging, and you've become obviously very massively successful as an arranger. And I think I assume part of the driving impetus that inspires you to make all these arrangements is also thinking about what other people want. Like, of course, if you want to satisfy your own musical inclinations and feel fulfilled, but it also comes down to what the world wants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that's partly what's been responsible for a lot of your success is kind of a more empathy based approach. And so I do want to use that to kind of pivot to talk about this world of professional 
performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And in your book, although you don't actually, you do mention teaching a little bit. You talk about teachers you had growing up. You mentioned that your sisters, uh, I think you said, were Mm -hmm. uh, teachers and you you are very complimentary about teachers. But the focus of your book in terms of the uh, professional side of it and giving professional advice is about the world of performance. And of course, we could do a whole separate podcast interview just on professional advice. Um, But I want to instead uh, simulate kind of a specific scenario that I think many of our listeners might find themselves in and see what you would advise specifically for that situation. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast have sort of decided that at least they want a portion of their career, if not the majority, to be about teaching piano. And I'm sure many of our listeners have full teaching schedules and they don't necessarily want to drop teaching and just start trying to be you. Um, They would like to, you know, do maybe more performing than they currently have, but without completely abandoning the studio that they've worked hard to build up. So for someone who is right now doing basically nothing but teaching and wants to start getting back into performing, do you have any advice for how someone in that situation might be able to kind of augment their performance opportunities or kind of get their foot wet in the world of performance while still not having to abandon their private students? Yes, I do. First of all, the, the, the kind of overall thing is that most, if we're, we're talking about pianists specifically, but most piano uh, jobs are at night and most teaching is during the day. And there are plenty of, uh, you know, it's going to be a full, uh, a very busy week, but a lot of people have two jobs anyway. I know I sure did when yeah. I was getting started. You know. Oh yes, and I, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but one thing that you brought up in the book that I really appreciated is you did not remotely look down on day jobs. Right. You brought it up a lot as something that we should not feel guilty about, and oh, is actually a wonderful <laughs> way to make things work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, it's it's uh, and particularly if teaching is is your main thrust, absolutely do all your teaching, but. Again, most jobs are either on the weekend for uh, if you play at church, or, or on the evenings if you play cocktail piano. Or you, and again, this is these are not classical uh, jobs. I don't now. I have a nephew who plays trumpet, and uh, in a in the Raleigh Symphony or in the North Carolina Symphony, um, and he he teaches full time, but he plays the. He, he also plays the symphony, and he also plays at church. And when uh, musicals come to town and they hire local musicians. He's one of the ones they hire to fill out the, uh, you know, a touring show. So, <clears throat> so he's working all the time and uh, he's doing mostly reading. He's not, he's, he's, it's, it's, it's classical and, and, um, mm-hmm. and then the musicals, the big musicals that come to town. Uh, I think what someone should do is just think it, it, what you are doing is you're augmenting your teaching profession. Your profession is that of a teacher. Great. And these are things on the side. You may find out later that you want to do more and more of them. But mm-hmm. the good news is that they almost all happen in the evening, even, even if you're doing a wedding or an event or a corporate event or on a Sunday afternoon. So there's room to do both as long as, you, as long as you're willing to work a 60-hour week, you know. Right. And so let's say someone does decide they are willing to work a 60 hour week and they like this idea of working at night and maybe teaching during the day. But currently they they don't have any gigs. How Mm. would you advise? Like, what would you think would be a good first step? What would be a good step? I guess the first thing to do if you're uh, is find out what you are good at. Like you you are a musical director, you, Ben. 
So you can do musical directing at theater and so forth. So you would find out if there's a theater. I mean, there would be a theater nearby and you'll find out by simply by going and asking. But uh, I would I would say you need to get, oh, uh, hmm, that's interesting. I, getting going because I did it so long ago, I can't remember. Well, I think what you're kind of alluding to is actually similar to what you were saying earlier about arranging is you need to figure out what your thing is. It doesn't have to be just look at all the places hiring and just apply everywhere. Yeah. I mean, look inward and think, what is it that I'm good at? What am I, what type of performances do I want to do? What type of performance environments make me feel comfortable and take it from there. But in the same way that when you're arranging something, as you were saying, you start with you know, who am I? I mm -hmm. think I assume similar thing in terms of figuring out what types of gigs you want to pursue. That's that's a very good answer. And I guess what I would say, if for example, if you're going, if you think you want to be a cocktail pianist, well, you better learn about 500 songs to play by ear. Exactly. Uh, you know, you don't have to arrange them. They don't have to be finished arrangements, but you need to know the tunes and be able to sit down and play them. If you're going to be a musical director, well, then you better learn to read and and conduct and all the things that you know you have to do. So I would say you already answered it. You would take what you are best at. And then here, here's the thing, I, I, something I do mention is that it seems a little bit overwhelming if you're starting out with that. But if you remember that you are one person who needs one job and I, I moved to different, I, I lived in five or six different places in my earlier in my 30s and when I got there I didn't have a job but I and, and in some places they say well there are no jobs here for cocktail pianists well there just needs to be one that's all mm -hmm. I'm interested in is one job yeah and I got it and I this never failed me I, I think if you think there, there's one wedding that needs me one event mm -hmm. uh, and and I think I think again that's a it's a it's a viewpoint and a paradigm shift there are numerous so much free in, uh, information on the net these on the web these days that you can do and i encourage people to use them i'm not that guy who teaches that there's tons but certainly if you come from the viewpoint that i this is what i do best i can do it and there just needs to be one place for me to do it where i live yeah i remember in the book there was one point where you put that point in bold on the performance you said i am just one person looking for one job i do think that can be a comforting thing to think when you sort of look at the thousands of other people who want to do music as well so they okay fine but don't worry about that yeah, yeah. i just need one that's it i thought that was comforting um so i want to end today's interview by just talking a little bit about now that this book is written sort of two questions first What's next for you and kind of what are you up to now that the book is written and where can everyone go if they're interested in purchasing this book and more generally following you and the work that you do? Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the book is available wherever you buy books online or in, uh, I don't know if it's going to be in bookstores, heart and brick and mortar, but you can order it through Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes and Noble and all of those. And, and even at your local bookstore, you can ask them to order it for you. So that's where the book is available. And, and I have a website. Uh, just emilependolfi.com. So if you can spell it, I just learned how to spell it last week, but if you can, then you can find me. I'll put it in the show notes <laughs> if anyone is not confident about their spelling abilities. Uh, and as far as my, uh, what I'm doing now is, is um, I'm doing, CDs have gone, gone the way of dinosaurs. So we're not doing any 
full albums anymore. The last uh, complete album I did was in 2016. So now what I'm doing is I'll take one tune and arrange it and submit it to the online streaming platforms like Spotify and Pandora and, and all the rest. And I encourage people, if you are composing what we're calling commercial music, uh, to get onto CD Baby because CD Baby is the distributor. It's, it's the online distributor for all the streaming platforms, some that I never heard of. And just like uh, uh, you used to have a distributor for brick and mortar, well, CDs. Now, now there's CD Baby is the place you start. And they have a lot of tutorials, by the way. Very interesting. Okay. Well, um, I, know, I, I think I've made it clear in the interview. I really, really liked the book. I, Thank um, you. Read through the whole thing, and it was great. It had even for me as a you know more, someone who's more seasoned in the piano world, there was a lot that I learned from it. So thanks for writing this great book, and thanks for coming on the podcast. And thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to all of you for tuning into All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.